You're getting an education in more ways than one, boy. survive the experience yes it is episode 39 of the save for half podcast a podcast about old school games and the modern games inspired by them today we have arguably both we have the fourth edition of the morrow project we're reviewing from timeline limited it was put out in a kickstarter edition in 2013 but the original game dates from 1980 and i am here as DM Mike, a member of the Frozen Chosen. With me is DM Liz, who is a ballooner because she wants to fly in a balloon away from other people. Damn Skippy. <laughs> and DM Corbett, a member proudly of Napoleon's own, though he probably doesn't think he's Napoleon today. I'm definitely not that short. Oh, you saved me for <laughs> last. This should be good. Go for it. Uh... DM Jim, a member of the technicians, vowed to rebuild technology around the world, whether people like it or not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and as I said, we're talking about The Morrow Project, a game based on a short story written by Robert Seidler back in 1979. That explains a lot, actually. Yeah. Kevin Dockery, Robert Seidler, and Richard Tucholka were the ones who originally really enjoyed his Short story, then decided, what we need to do is create a post-apocalyptic RPG based on it. From what I've read, they actually stopped work on it. At least that's the, the rumor. They stopped work on it when Gamma World was announced. Because oh. they figured Gamma World would cover it. Then they got Gamma World and thought, eh, not realistic enough. So they started going again. And they turned, eventually, the game into publication as The Morrow Project. Now, I picked the fourth edition, even though it is by far and away the largest of them. Editions 1 through 3 were averaging between 70 and 90 pages. This one was 330. I apologize for that, guys. Presumably the best rule set, though, the more modern one. For, as a role-playing game, yes. Third edition tried to import some RPG information, cribbing from Chaosium with their approval. Their BRP system, especially the first and second editions, were really what we would call today skirmish war games. You had individual stats and figures, but it was really a war game. So kind of like a post-apoc version of original Boot Hill. Yeah. I was about to say. Very much. Warlords of Mars, the Barsoom TSR game. That's really what you're talking about. So that was in style yeah, at the time. pretty much. 
One thing that I'm sure everyone will have recognized, they also were big believers in combat simulation realism. And yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that as it went in. Because while 4th edition introduced a lot of new rules, I'm just guessing here, I get the impression that the guy who came up with it, Chris Garland, the guy who did the 4th edition, the guy who owns uh, Timeline Limited now. Chris, Christopher Morell and Robert O'Connor. Yeah, they're the guys held responsible. But uh, before we get into the de- gritty details, let's go into Mike and the Mechanics. It's time for Mike and the Mechanics. Sorry, sorry. That's Mike and the Mechanics of the Game. My bad. All right, Mike and the Mechanics. There are several attributes. Several of them were changed for the fourth edition from the first through third. Some of them are pretty easily recognizable. Strength, dexterity, constitution. Added with awareness, which in earlier editions was known as accuracy. Expression, which kind of works as a serial number filed off charisma. Reasoning and focus. And you determine these attributes by rolling 46 and adding 6, which gives you a number between 10 and 30. A little weird. I mean, I understand why they did it, but the original first through third, they basically had 46 minus 4, so you ended up between 0 and 20. Which, considering 1980, you know, D&D, 3 to 18, I think was more in the zeitgeist at the time, but... There's also attribute mass, which I think they cribbed from size from Chaosium. It is a skills-based system. You purchase skills either by modifying various attributes or getting a flat 250 and then just go and buying your skill points. One point per equals a percentage in given skill. As far as combat, there is things called structure points and blood points. Structure points divvy out to various portions of the body. They're like hit points, sort of like the old brown book Blackmore tried to do with animals. Each area has a number of points. Those points destroyed, that limb can no longer be used. Blood points keep track of the blood in your body. You bleed a lot in this game. Blood loss is a big thing. So like when Vigilante got his little toe shot off in Peacemaker last week, and it actually (laughs) kept him from walking straight. Uh, I totally knew you were watching that. (laughs) All right, talking about the game, first impressions, I'll get it over right out the gate. Jim, what was your impressions? Welcome to a special episode of Safer Half, as we all try to remain friends and not piss off any listeners. (laughs) On yet another game choice by Mike. (laughs) I hope you know I'm just playing around. My first impression was, this game, when it came out, I picked it up and thumbed through it like a hundred times in the game store. It has a great name. The first edition cover with the symbols of the different units, the Osiris Eye for Recon and stuff. Super attractive and thumbed through it because post-apocalyptic games were my jam uh, back then and now. But never bought it, never played it, never ran it. And now that I've reviewed the fourth edition, I understand why. <laughs> you know, and I, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to do the best job I can of distinguishing between playstyle preferences and mechanics, stuff like that. Because think that, you know, Pathfinder, Pathfinder's not my jam. That's, that's not mm-hmm. a playstyle that I particularly like. And 
So we're going to be talking about, and I'm going to try and articulate my top five in the context of something that's not just not my cup of tea. It's actually antithetical to the things I enjoy in an RPG. Well, I will say, even back in the 1980s, Marvel Project had a rep as super complex combat. And, and like you said, very realistic war game simulation and stuff like that. And uh, I mean, we mm-hmm. waited through Aftermath, played a whole summer of Aftermath, but we never got to the Marvel Project. So I think I underst- I think it was a good choice for me then back then. That doesn't mean, you know, there's not great stuff in this game. And I'll try and talk about that too. Okay, Corbett? Okay, My, let me preface by Mike lied to me. <laughs> I did not. <laughs> Where did I lie? I, I, I'm in my. I've got my best behavior shoes on, Corbin. You just come out of the gate, Mike. You lied. You lied like a rug, Mike. You ignorant slut. <laughs> Man, he's gonna have to beat that out. He sold it to me on the idea that okay, it's a post-apocalyptic game. You're coming out as the the founders of you know the next stage of humanity. People frozen the, the people... specifically to help reconstruct. America. Yep. It wasn't humanity. It's America. America. Americans are people too. <laughs> I keep telling you. Oh, oh man. I got to admit that really stuck in my side reading this whole thing. It Maybe. was fun. It was. <laughs> oh my God. We're going to talk about politics in a game podcast because it's unavoidable. <laughs> Go back to Woodstock. <laughs> I, the thing is, I've I've watched a lot of Gene Roddenberry's like pack series back in the seventies. He tried to do a series that was basically post-apocalyptic. A guy is frozen. He wakes up in the future. There's a new group of people called Packs. That's basically the planetary alliance of something I forget. But basically, a guy who's trying to rebuild the world. There's super science, sorcery, the whole bit. Dylan Hunt is the main character, and and they keep running back. He tries it, I think, two or three times. Never really hits. Then he makes it Andromeda. So if you've seen Andromeda, you've seen the space version of that. Post-apocalyptic Star Trek. Yeah, but uh, it was not that, and it kept really, really... It was a bit hard to swallow. And yes, the rules are chunky in the revised version. So... (laughs) But I think I'll stay away from the rules and just complain about everything else. Okay. <laughs> Corbett, we're, we're going to be on the same team because I, I very much was reminded of a bunch of those TV movies that were backdoor pilots Roddenberry did in the 70s, which is when these guys were cooking up their short story. Mm-hmm. I mean, this this game could have been, easily been, you know, like a one season science fiction show in the 70s. Yeah. May have even been inspired by that PAX show. Who knows? Yeah, probably. There was a lot of shows like it, so it's mm. not like it's all together. It was a new. thing. Yeah. Liz? Tough. First impressions. Bleh. It's big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it... but the Corbett scale, you could probably kill even a mutated cockroach with it. Oh, man. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> I felt very overwhelmed by the sheer number of tables and charts and descriptions of weaponry. Liz? Not liking tables? Hmm. I'm shocked. I I know. Amazing. (laughs) Okay. That it? That's pretty much it. My first impression was, oh my gosh, how am I going to get this to where I can actually play? Well, I will say, I've always liked the concept of the Morrow Project. First edition I read, I did not like it because I thought the combat system was needlessly complex and there really wasn't much else to it. 
it was combat. It was more or less a skirmish war game, and you just developed scenarios. Which, if that's your bag, that's awesome. But it wasn't to me. But it always struck me as something unfortunate, because I love the concept of people coming out in the apocalypse. They have knowledge. They've got a limited amount of resources. But they've got this overwhelming job of trying to rebuild civilization. Then the fourth edition came out. And I know this is going to surprise people, but... I actually found an actual play podcast I like, and it's called Tomorrow's End, and it's based on the 4th edition Morrow Project. And I started listening to it mostly because I thought, I hate actual play, but I want to figure out how the heck you actually do the combat system, because I can't figure it out from reading it. But it's so simple. It's very simple. (laughs) We know what that means, don't we, guys? (laughs) Well, it depends on what generation of game you are. Sometimes, like when we sat down to play Bunnies and Burrows in in the context of an MCC campaign, we quickly went to just, we'll use the MCC rules. Yeah. Combat system and stuff. You can do that. I mean, you were certainly doing that in the 80s. I was. And that's the thing. Tomorrow's End uses a simplified version of the combat system, so I didn't actually find out. But that's okay, because I like their combat system. And in an online Morrow Project game I am currently running, I am using the simplified system. Thank you, Tim Gray. (laughs) So, my first impression, this book was bigger than it needed to be. I get the sinking suspicion that Somebody did stretch goals as, we'll add 100 pages to the rules or something like that. And then when it well overfunded, they're like, oh, crap, I got 300 pages to do. I got to come up with stuff to put in it. I don't know this. This is purely a guess on my part, but that's how it reads. So, all right, well, let's take a pod break then. And when we come back, we'll get Jim's top five. Mad balls, mad balls, gross for one, gross for all. We play with a mad ball, they're gross, funny, yucky, sick. There's eight, so you can take your pick. We throw, catch, it's uh oh fun. There's so much gross in every one. Freaky fun is what they're for. There's so much ugly, so much more. Gross for one, gross for all. We play with a mad ball. We play with a mad ball. We play with a mad ball. Mad ball. Freaky fun for everyone, sold separately from Amtoy. Mad ball. Top fives. Jim, what you got? Uh, my top five dovetails off the last thing you just said in your impressions in that, uh, and I'm, I'm going to try and start with uh, uh, things I really liked about this game. I have a massive amount of respect for the research and effort that went into populating this game with its content, which is why the game probably appeals to the base it appeals to. I mean, at the end of every bell curve, there's little science fiction versions of that. But before you even get there, there's all the 20th and 21st century equipment meticulously annotated. Every animal that ever lived in the continent of North America and a few that didn't. Medical equipment, clothes. It really reads like a game written by guys who were in the military were excessively attracted to that kind of stuff. Gearheads. 
Huh? Gearheads. Oh, good, Gearheads. Good word. Like, it makes sense now because we're recording this now, but earlier in the week or last week, you were asking a bunch of questions on Facebook about very specific models of tanks and what would the fuel systems be like 150 years later. And now I understand what you were doing. Yeah. I was figuring out what I can inflict on people, realistically. Massive respect for that amount of research and the effort and the copious annotation of it all in the game book. Okay. Corbett? Number five, Tube Shock. Yet another game that we can die before the game starts. What's up with that? Oh, I'm, hey. a, I'm a fan of that, actually, in Traveler, and, and, and that's why I put it MCC, but I could understand what not being a fan of it. Well, no, but this is this is like after your character's made. It's like, made, all right, the game starts, you're dead. <laughs> <laughs> ha, ha. Or you come out of those cryogenics all crypt up pretty good yeah 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 that's the thing there's a there's a small chance that you can essentially come out like a an overdone toaster waffle or something yeah (laughs) oozing goo and everything else speaking of i find that a little frustrating a little bit yeah but it made a great (laughs) rationale for jared's character because jared had to be at his daughter's birthday party i mean really instead of a game but it made a great (laughs) way of dealing with his character why he was out of it and couldn't really help with the party with the team because he was suffering tube shot but i didn't randomly roll everybody on there so you know i i agree i agree that that may be a bit much but well i mean i know traveler wise it's a popular thing so i get it but but at least in traveler you died doing something you died (laughs) because you were so greedy you had to have that starting ship so you just kept Mm -hmm. aging that guy up till he finally croaked or you really That's wanted really gun true. combat three, you know, you were just going for that one more skill. But yeah, you napped. Yeah, it does seem like a bit of a a cheat. You spent the time to make your character. And let's assume that you all had a character creation session before you got together for your first game session. And so you get there and you're ready to go and it's the beginning of the game session and the project director tells you you're dead. It's like, (laughs) now I don't have a character and I'm sitting here twiddling my thumbs while the rest of you guys are having fun around the table. Thank Mm -hmm. you. (laughs) I'd have to check but I'll bet money that rule came from the first through third editions. <laughs> it was oh, part probably. of their obvious attempt to try to be backwards compatible. Appeal to yeah. the base that's already used to certain things in the game. Yeah, and appeal to the base. But yeah, you're right. That That is kind of awful. Yeah, it just seems like because you can't really roll up another character. And go, oh, wait, there's another tube over there. Yeah, although to be fair, you can roll up characters who are already survivors in the apocalypse. You don't have to run a Morrow character, though that that's what they do occur, encourage. I, I, on a story level, I also get like... Planet of the Apes. They did that at the beginning of Planet of the Apes, with a lot of people kind of glaze past. One of the right. one of the astronauts was dead. Yeah, granted, the, the, the chick. Yeah, the chick. Thank the you. chick. Which, by the way, it was the sixties. So. No, I'll save that for another number. We'll go. <laughs> Her name was Stuart. If anybody cares. <laughs> How ironic. Okay. All right, Liz. All right, number five. Well, um, since I've already mentioned it as part of my first impression, there's a lot of tables in this book. A lot of tables. There are also a lot of ways to die. This lovingly. is a lethal game. Yes, a lot of ways to die. Lovingly mapped out and described for the project director's pleasure. Death and by my, diarrhea chart. Yes, I was going to say <laughs> my personal favorite is the diarrheal illnesses section, or as I like to call it, the Oregon Trail You Have Died of Dysentery section. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they go into 
detail more than you probably need. We're they talking really do. Warhammer critical <laughs> hit table level of detail. Yeah, to your intestine. To yes. your intestines, yes. <laughs> yes. It's like, wow. <laughs> Can we just say that you're suffering from cholera rather than giving a, dare I say, blow-by-blow blow account of what happens to you? Wow. Ow. I don't need to know all that. Let's just say I'm ill and roll some dice, okay? <laughs> so what you're saying is, not a game for the easily triggered. No, no. Well, for those who aren't aware, actually, the Moral Project, one of the things that are the basis of the game is you're put in the tubes. You were supposed to be released by a signal from Prime Base three to five years after the nuclear war, because that idea was that that would give enough time for the fallout mostly to to go away. Something bad has happened, and you wake up 150 or 200 years after. Mm -hmm. And that's why there's problems, say, with the freeze tubes and stuff, because it wasn't meant to last that long. Uh, I'll just start with a weird one. The combat system in here, if you ignore blood points, which I do, or rather, I just attach it as a constitution saving throw. I don't follow blood points. It's stupid. It's one of those where the combat system itself is, is fairly simple, but it has so many modifiers and exceptions and special rules that it just drags you down. Though one of the weird ones is when they were talking about the size of targets. They were listed by numbers. Zero, one, two, three, size target. Size zero target is given as bottle, baby. Who shoots at a baby? <laughs> Who is looking at a baby? Size one. Toddler. Well, somebody who's a really good shot, obviously. Who's shooting <laughs> at, at preschool children. I mean, I know the apocalypse. A bunch of Morrow is... Project guys that woke up in the middle of The Walking Dead. That's who shoots babies. Wait, 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 <laughs> was, it an, was it an evil baby? An evil baby? <laughs> an evil toddler? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Who's shooting babies? It makes me think of that meme, uh, the stormtrooper who's got the little shackles for Baby Yoda. Oh, he yeah. said, put him in shackles. Baby? Baby? Shackle? Why do we have baby shackles? Why were we ready for this? <laughs> Are we the baddies? <laughs> Are you watching Boba Fett? Because I bet that woman that runs the uh, landing pad who dates Jawas has got some baby-sized shackles. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> ah, Messed up, Jim. Uh, <laughs> number four. Jim. <laughs> so uh i'm gonna dive into start picking on the game and i'll try and circle back to some good stuff too but uh w this is playstyle preference because i mean i wrote mcc you know and i and i imprinted on game world so you know what i like the game does have mutant creatures that have evolved even in the 150 to 200 years it, it talks about it up front that that's one of the features of the game you dive down through where they've got like copious lists of every animal that ever roamed the north american continent and some that didn't in case you're playing in australia or wherever camels are but then the section with the mutant creatures they're all super weak sauce creatures a so it's just kind of a hand wave towards having cool monsters to fight to, to me, to my playstyle preferences. I mean, you play this game, you're going to be killing other people and other units of people, like in The Walking Dead. Because you're out there, you know, with God knows what's gone on in 150 years, trying to rebuild, but sometimes people don't want to. Yeah. Um, so the mutant animals are just all weak. I will say 
that there is an iconically Morrow Project mutant creature that was left out of fourth edition, but was in first through third. And oh, it was please called tell me. The Blue mm-hmm. Undead. And he wasn't specifically undead, but he is so irradiated that he glows blue and his mind has kind of been reset almost childlike and they usually see people and they want to run up and try to communicate or any sorts of very simple things but this thing is letting out like a thousand rads sounds like the screamers in a boy and his dog which i love and stole (laughs) it was like 30 or 50 foot Mm. radius and people and they're very very hard to kill so they're like the tarasque for marl project but the guy doing this the fourth edition left it out because he said it wasn't realistic (laughs) and yeah but neither are the maggots or Doomrot, or, you know, other mutated creatures. And Blue Undead are just so iconic to the Morrog system, and I don't know why he did that. So well, I can appreciate an, a, a conscious attempt to set the slider bars in a different place, and it just works out. That's not my favorite place. Right. Mm. Okay. Corbett? I have a question for Mike, because he's running the game, and I'm curious how you take this, because I this is a problem I had by reading the setup for the Morrow Project. The, the setup is, just so everybody knows, uh, the setup is that people are put into cryogenic stasis and then, you know, woken up in the future. Classic Buck Rogers stuff. But the thing is, they're putting in like 200 people a year into these cryotubes over a 40-year span, and they're all popping out with gear presumably based around the era they're from. And I don't, I mean, it seems unrealistic to have like, oh, we could run into another Morrow Project team that's from 1970. <laughs> well, um, well, we have gear from 2020. <laughs> you know, that's, that, well, how do you handle that in the game? Or do you, have you even tried to approach that yet? How do you, how do you know they're from 1970? Well, for starters, their cell phones are the size of a brick. <laughs> <laughs> and their BDUs have bell bottoms. <laughs> But man, are their sea rations good. (laughs) (laughs) Better than the MREs from 2022. That is basically there to let people... There are still a lot of people who like to roleplay that there was a nuclear war during the 70s or 80s. And that's there in case you want to run a campaign based on Well, no, there's a roll-up. for To pick what era your your person's from, and in 2017 is like the beginning of the end. In, In the setup they have for their history... For the right, project the baseline, the but but that's there to compensate for some of the earlier stuff. But yeah, you are allowed, much like most other things, to randomly roll. And yeah, well, I mean, even the people 2022, you're coming out, your vehicles run on fusion reactors. That's not now. Yeah. But they put it in. Cryofreeze is, is not now, but it's future tech that Bruce Morrow brought back with him. And yeah, you're you're pretty much told, even people who are frozen in the 70s are told, you know, there may be gear waiting on you that you're not familiar with. You'll have to bone up on your way. Okay, okay. I I don't think that the tables, well, the tables for each team or for each individual, because I don't think they mixed and matched I presume it was based on each team. Yeah. But uh, you could do it each individual, I guess. But it does seem like, man, if I'm running with somebody from 1980 and, you know, I'm from... 2010 that's like 20 30 years difference <laughs> but think of the role-playing possibilities oh well, yeah there's a lot of role-playing in that it's like facebook you try and run with the kids and then you use the word yeet wrong and they all get on you because you're no man. <laughs> yeah. 
That's yeah, very, I mean, you, you could have some 1972 people. I could see that as some fun roleplay, actually. Eh, maybe. I just think, like, in the realism of, like, if people from 40 years, uh, 40 year, four decades of time collectively trying to do the same thing, like, your perspective of what America is in 1980 is completely different from what it is in 2020. Indeed. <laughs> so that would be interesting. Exactly. Oh, okay. So I guess my answer is yes, but a feature, not a bug. <laughs> Defense noted. <laughs> Liz? Okay, number four. Yeah, maybe the mutated animals in the back were kind of eh. But I will say, I did particularly <laughs> I like what's coming here. the mini moose. That That is just... It, You're just saying that because one of them attacked your striker. Yes, no. oh, he's so tiny and adorable <laughs> and and mean. <laughs> he's slamming its antlers into the tire and it's just bouncing off. I mean, they're they're like they're like little chihuahuas. You know, did they don't they do not care how big you are. They're gonna go for it. Did you did you name your mini moose Messalina? I did not. We we did it we ran away so from the funny. mini moose. It was middle of the night. They had it on thermals. They just saw this thermal image the size of a beagle racing toward the striker. They're like, "What the heck? What the heck is going on? What should we do? What should we... wham boink boink? That's it. What's it doing? Boink! It's bouncing off these huge tires on your striker." But it's furiously snorting, but it's cutely adorable. I mean, <laughs> honestly, the first thing I thought of when Mike described the mini moose, mooses, meese, I don't know. Um, it was singular. It was only yeah. one. You haven't been attacked by a stampede yet. Oh, my gosh. I can hardly wait. <laughs> the first thing I thought of were the mimics from Girl Genius. <laughs> it's like, oh. <laughs> so, yeah. That I mean, funny. I don't care if we never see any of the other mutated creatures, but the mini moose, that is awesome. I love that. <laughs> okay. Uh, mine, talking about the, the base task system, I really like it because mm. it's slightly different than what you would think. You've got a 50% chance in a skill. We are trained. You roll below 50. Ought one is the absolute best you can do, right? Not in Moral Project. You're still looking at below 50, but the tens die you roll is the number of successes you have. So if you roll a 45, that's four successes. But if you roll doubles, like 33, that's six successes. That's the equivalent of a critical. So like Con 11 is two successes, 22 is four successes, 33 is six successes. If your skill is 50 and you roll a 55, that's 10 failures. So six is a uh, sixty-two is six failures. Well, minus you minus one, one for failures. So it'd be five failures. Sorry, it's a nifty system. It's elegant. My only problem with it is, is it seems like when you roll a, a fail, you're generally rolling really bad fails. There's no way to ever so slightly fail. Hmm, that's interesting. So that's my only problem with it. Like that fifty percent skill, you roll a fifty-one. That's five failures. You don't get two failures or one failure, or rather it'd be four failures because minus 10, but you see what I mean. That's my only grouse with it. And I've been trying to think of a way to overcome that to, to make failing less horrendous, but I haven't been able to yet. Well, could you not just do, you know, the opposite of the success thing? So say your skill is 45, you roll a 50, that's one failure. 
because you're just in the tens one rank away from what your success roll would have been. Or subtract 45 from whatever you do roll, and that's how many failures. That would do it. So if you rolled a 50 and your skill is 45, that's zero failures. You failed, but it's not anything seriously bad to you. Huh. Okay. Duly noted. That'll go in the house rules document. Three. Jim. I love how we're thinking along the same lines, because I'm going to talk about the dice pool mechanics as it relates to generating your core character abilities, which, uh, by the way, awareness, expression, reasoning, and focus would be great abilities if you were writing an RPG about how to do podcasting. I think we all <laughs> score pretty high in those four. Dice pool mechanics are not my cup of tea, but in a game like, say, Mouse Guard, I read the rules, I understood it, I could play that, and it was good. But generating those characters... And, and you, you correct me when I'm wrong or you answer questions that come up in this, but I found it very confusing. And I'm not a dumb person. So you're going to generate those six abilities with a dice pool of 28 dice. And if they've told you further up that you only need two kinds of dice, you need a pair of D10s and four D6s, right next to an illustration of a hand holding the regular polyhedros. So, okay. That was confusing. Then it would get when they say you have dice pool twenty eight dice that you're going to divide from one to four dice for each ability and decide. Um, they don't say whether it's a d ten or d six. So you tell me which is it. It's d sixes, and the, that's one of the alternative methods of generating characters. Normally, it's forty six plus six for attribute. But yeah, with, with the caveat that no ability score can be under ten or over forty, or just use the point cost table to assign numbers. Right, which is another way of doing it. I just find the 10 to 30 pretty non-intuitive myself. I understand why they did that, because basically whatever your attribute is doubled, that's your ability to do anything involving, say, strength. If your strength is 20, your base to do it is 40. So I understand that in the old 0 to 20 system, your top of your skill, you're Arnold Schwarzenegger, but your strength, you only have a 40%. That doesn't make sense. Once you become accustomed to it, does it really seem elegant and intuitive? Because yeah, at face value, reading through the rules as a stranger to them, it was not. I will mm, say, I agree to that. The, the character generation system, I had to read several times to figure it out. I mean, it it's not well laid out. Kudos for their attempts, but I think they really could have streamlined that and made it a little more clearer. Well, I'm asking you questions because I honestly don't know if I'm just too pre-programmed for D20 at this point that anything that's off off spec throws me. But like I'm, I'm, I kept equivalating things like the structure points. Okay, what the hell are those? Oh, wait, it's hit points, except it's not just hit points. It's structure points and blood points, which you said you don't even use. And it's a formula to get your structure points. Yeah. It's a formula to get your hit points in D&D. It's so many... It's a certain type of dice, and so many of them, plus some number, depending on your class and level. Constitution, yeah. But I'm used to that, so I don't know how much is what I'm used to and how much of it just seems wacky and weird and unnecessarily complicated for its own sake. Right. And yeah, I would feel more comfortable with a 0 to 20 just because, like you said, 3 to 18 were, were programmed that way. But I think I'm getting used to it. I think a lot of these options they should have left in the back because it makes it makes rolling up your characters needlessly confusing. But that's just me. So, no, I, I don't think, it, you know, there's a problem there because it is, it could have dealt with a streamlined version. Normally, I, I mean, I'm, there's nothing wrong with a game that's written so that, okay, we're getting together to first time to play. The, tonight's session will be creating the characters because lots of games are champions is that way. Pathfinder is that way. Yeah, but if you just are sitting there reading the rule book, it can take a while. Okay, Corbett? 
You know, honestly, I think I would probably drop a lot of the rules. The reason being not because like, oh, they're so complicated or so this or so that, but I think I would, if I was going to make a change to the game to fit my style, I would turn it into, I would, I would change kind of the backdrop setup because the backdrop throws me a little bit i think the whole setup with you're rebuilding the government it's far flung in the future or civilization but yeah yeah it does not say that (laughs) but that's beside the point Uh, like if it were i had the funny idea i told this to mike was would it be funny if you thought it was 150 years in the future but it was actually like a week after you were put in and you're picked up by russians and dropped in the middle of like a russian uh spy training town and and they just wanted to see what Americans would do if this situation happened. Then like half of the game is you trying to figure out how to survive in this weird world, then finding out it's all a lie and it turns into spies like us and you're trying to get out of Russia. And that could be funny. Oh, yeah, I, I agreed. I thought it'd be great because then you could have your character constantly going around talk, sneering at the locals and their acting ability and the lame props and stupid costumes. And it would just be a different angle on the whole concept or to take it kind of as a, I guess, a farce based on the Cold War. It's got a lot of Cold War overtones. I don't know if you ever played, um, what was it, The Price of Freedom, the no. the RPG? Basically, it's the Red Dawn RPG. Red Dawn, yeah. It's got a lot of that whole, oh, it's us versus the Russians feel, and it, it really has a lot of those overtones laid in. Actually, it. I think one of the authors of Moral Project was behind Price of Freedom. I'd have to look that up to be sure, though. It wasn't, it wasn't a bad game. It's just like it was one of those games that kind of hit that, like, okay, that was a cool thing. But I think if it was done kind of funny or, or taken with a little tongue-in-cheek, then I, I probably would have enjoyed it a little more, but it was taking itself very, very, very well, it seriously. it was the 80s. Yeah. Well, this is this is written in 2013, so it didn't change like well, much of the tone. Like Jim said, <laughs> yeah, appealing to the base. Yeah. No, no, you're right, Corbett. The, the through line of this whole thing is very 60s and 70s. You know, the, the white, I'm going to get in trouble, but I'm going to say it anyway. The white military saviors are coming in to fix everybody's crap, whether they want it fixed or not. I guess it just rubbed me the wrong way. Maybe I'm just bitter. You hate America. <laughs> You hate That's freedom. Probably it. Well, no, I feel I, I feel you, Corbin. I, I think I'm right there with you. It's just, but that's a taste thing too. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah. So what we're saying is that Mike is broken. <laughs> ah. Okay, Liz. Number three, they've got something in the back, an optional rule that a project director can use in addition to giving the game's version of experience points. But they have an optional rule called karma points. And a lot of games tend to have some kind of variant of this nowadays, whether it's fate points, victory points, luck points, whatever. The karma points, though, has some similarities, I thought, to the concept of bimbo points from the Super Babes game. Now, if you go into the negative, the project director has the ability to inflict bad luck on the player, Hmm. making them re-roll an otherwise successful roll or, you know, something like that. So I thought that was an interesting idea to add to the game that was... Make it a bit more cinematic. Yeah, and also can help with situations where just due to bad luck and dice rolling, you know, everybody dies. It's like, well, (laughs) if people have karma points, they might be able to get out of that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That it? Yes. Okay. My three. I like the skill system. (gasps) I know, right? Everybody mark your calendar. (laughs) Holy crap. I like it. Everything is these big general categories and 
you buy what is up to a root skill, they call it, say, firearms. You can buy up to 20%. Then if you want, say, to be good at handguns, you can specialize in handguns, which gives you another 5, 10, whatever percent. And so if you're trying to hit somebody, you, know, you take, say, I think firearms, is that dexterity? Yes. You take your dexterity. We'll say your dex is a 20. Your base, which makes your base double that, which is a 40. You have 20 as your root skill in firearms, which makes it 60. And you got 10 in handgun. You now have a 70% chance to hit. Done. You, of course, have modifiers depending on how difficult it is, whether you're shooting a baby. <laughs> or you could said another way, you could just say... Or a 16 or higher on a D20. Or a 16 higher on a D20, which the original Marl Project used. It also had what they called armor values, which was essentially a letter version of an armor class. And yeah, they did originally use the D20 for hit, but... Oh, I just looked it up. Firearms does not use dexterity. It uses awareness. Awareness! I, I thought so, because awareness used to be accuracy, and I was like, but dexterity makes no sense now that accuracy is awareness, but... Okay, so awareness. Yep. Because originally, you know, again, the military basis of the game in the earlier editions, they just called it accuracy. And it, what is it? It's your accuracy with a firearm, period. And it's like right after I said yes to dexterity, I started thinking, actually, I'm not sure about that. I better look. I... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I like the system. I think it's very intuitive. Just lock all that together, hit, roll your hits. And, you know, depending on how many successes you get, which is pretty neat. I won't go into the target areas. That's a whole different area. But that's my three. So, two. Jim. Dude, I don't know what's going on this podcast, but you and I are wired because target areas is my number two. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm just going to take a broadsword to it, and you can get in and explain why it's really not that bad. Hit location tables. I mean, they go all the way back to the earliest days of the hobby. They've proven unpopular to the general gaming public over and over again. I'm just annoyed that there's pages and pages, and let's talk about how many tables they are, but imagine what a hit location table, how big that mm. son of a bitch is. <laughs> you know, when yeah. it's down to fingers and, and, and stuff. And Well, yeah, just, just for the listeners, the uh, body form that deals with target areas has 31 different target areas listed on the body. So some people, that's their jam. They want to know exactly, you know, where on the biplane their shots landed in a World War One air duel. Okay, well, then these hit tables are the ones for you because they're extremely specific, especially when it starts getting into structure points or your hit points. But the structure point, if you play with the blood rules, depending on where the hit location is, there can be blood point damage and that's gonna have a more lasting less immediate impact like you bleed out because right. your arm got chopped off or something this combat system's whacked every time my character gets shot he dies <laughs> <laughs> yeah now to defense i guess it's it bugs me a little less because i played both aftermath and BattleTech, but the way the combat system is set will make the assumption you are not doing a call shot you're not specifically aiming for a body part you just shoot at somebody you roll randomly on the table, you hit them in the right elbow. But when you rolled to hit, you hit and got three successes. You can now move up or down that arm three sections. If you, if you put that toward accuracy instead of damage, when you make the roll, you're asked, do you put it toward accuracy or damage? And then you roll the location. So if you wanted to, you could turn that elbow hit to a neck hit or at least a shoulder hit, or you could hit him in the hand if that's what you'd rather do, or leave it where it is if that's what you want. 
they managed to work successes into the targeting area. So you still have a little agency there on where you hit your... That's super cool. I mean, you know, because it, it's contextual. In uh, Kenzer's Ace of Aces, you've got that dartboard overlay over the guy to see where your shot lands. And that that's cool enough that at least to play at a time or two, that's that's cool. Uh, so it mm-hmm. was just a it was just a play style complaint of mine. I'm not into all that. Okay. Well, I was just explaining how you know there is oh, a rationale. Is cool. More more successes. Okay. Instead of Zelbo, I'm going to get him at the wrist. Now he's not using a using knife his ever hand. again. Yeah. Right. So there is a method to the madness. But yeah, I can see it's not everybody's jam. And in fact, it gives an option to where you can just use your structure points as just plain old hit points if that's what you'd rather do. And not and not worry about target areas at all. That was my number two. Okay. Hit location tables. <laughs> bah! I got a bot. You got a bot in. Okay, Corbett. Actually, I just want to point this out. You did not want to have an example of combat played out on air in this game. Last last recording session, I had this idea. I pitched out to you, and you're like, yeah, that sounds pretty good, but I don't want to do it for Moral Project. Oh, God, no. Please, no. So, <laughs> that was before I... <laughs> Well, that's because I would have had to use blood points and structure points in target areas. And that's not how I'm so doing my regular So all the parts game. that work. Well, they work. They're just not my thing. I, I don't want to constantly track out blood spurting from everybody. And, and, you know, the average person is running around with about 210 structural points, anywhere from 180 to 210. Yeah. So considering the average 9mm bullet does 9E factor, which is energy factor, is what they consider more or less hit point damage, you could take a lot of bullets. And <laughs> It's just funny. But you're right. Strictly by the book, I didn't want to do it. Instead, we just recorded the character generation. And since we were going to make characters for this game anyway, I cheated and double dutied and had all my players on board with the three of us to make characters. So it was all ready to go. This sounds yeah, like Patreon. a good time to invite people to pledge to our Patreon so that they can get this great content. Yeah. yeah. And of course, thank our Patreons <laughs> who, you know, help yeah, support the thanks, show. Thanks, guys. I know I don't mention it much because I don't want to be one of those podcasts, but we do appreciate our Patreon investors supporters. Okay, Liz, two. Number two. One of the other things that I liked in this book, in the back part, again, the section for the project directors, there is a sample scenario in the back to get you started. And it fleshes out a small town, some of the main NPCs you can encounter, various interesting spots in the general locale. And it's got a rumor table. Okay, it's not, <laughs> it's not a table. But there's a section of possible rumors that you can hear and whether or not they are true. If the game has rumors, it's it can't be all bad, right? Right. <laughs> Which is ironic considering the number of tables it does have. Yes. That... <laughs> they, they did not actually put the rumors in a table format. It's just a listing for each rumor. It says whether or not, based on the sample scenario, is this rumor true or not? And if it is true or not. It also gives a brief description. This is what's actually going on. If it's a true rumor, here's the full story behind it. If it's a false rumor, it's like, that's not really what's happening. This is what's happening. Is it? Right. So I, I liked that. It, if you don't have the time or you're just you know lacking inspiration for creating your own starting point for a campaign, you can grab this and immediately get off the ground and move on from there because you know, chances are good your players are not going to stay in that same area 
They're going to be roving about. And so it gives you time to make up your own town, your own stuff. It's a keep on a borderland. It's a keep on a borderland, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And this is definitely a game that is engineered for a campaign, you know, full of mysteries and quests and things you, you know, you've got to go find other units and all that stuff. Yeah, mine too, which is going to probably surprise some people. I think they could have cut out a third of the gear. And it wouldn't have been a huge deal. They have a lot of stuff that, frankly, is obsolete. Mm. And I understand, because your team, when you come out, you not only have the gear with you, you've got caches in random locations around you that you have to go to for resupply. And one of the things they warn you about is they updated the gear at each of these caches as time and money allowed. So you might go to a cache open it up, and it's got the latest in 1972 military technology for you, which can kind of suck. But, you know... I I mean, but if you're out of bullets, any will do, right? Right. 5.56 should still do you, but yeah, Yeah. I mean... Well, if you're stuck in an area where pretty much everybody around you, the locals, are living in a pre-industrial style of It still rocks, yeah. It still rocks! It's better than what they have! (laughs) Indeed. But one of the packs I noticed had like tobacco. How well does tobacco keep over 200 years? I'm guessing not well. Uh, (laughs) A dry cure cigar will keep forever in a sealed container. And the bolt hole while you're in the tubes is filled with nitrogen to prevent decomposition or aging of your gear or corrosion or any of that. So that's the theory behind it. So yeah, yeah. I mean, (laughs) tobacco. There, there's probably a table where you roll to see if the... You die of tobacco inhalation. The nitrogen failed, and so you open up the bolt hole and everything's bad in it. Mm. Corbett, we I mean, don't want that old tobacco anyway. We want to go find the good mu- mutated kind. I think this is a funny thing. They put tobacco in. Like, oh man, I need a cigarette right now. Well, no, it's in the <laughs> trade pack. So the theory is you trade it with the locals for stuff. I, sure. Like like the bottles of whiskey. Yeah. That's trade which would age those would age well (laughs) but (laughs) but yeah and ironically they've got a lot of stuff from the 80s but there's only a few things from modern day honestly there's not nearly Mm. the gear you would expect a lot of their especially accoutrement for weaponry is stuff from 1980s I thought it felt very palladium. Yeah. Like all yeah. their books are just packed full of guns. Right. Well, I have a question, Mike. How does the amount of gear compare in this more modern fourth edition to the old day, old edition? There's I'm going to guess twice. in 1980, the, the, the page count wasn't 389. Oh, no, it was 74 pages. So, you know, you had your basic load and you had a few basic weaponry. And I think that's really all you need. I think they were trying to pack everything that was ever introduced in any of the modules or supplements or anything all in the book. Well, I mean, you look at the basic loads that everybody's supposed to have in their rockers for them to carry about. It's all still 1980s technology. They didn't update any of that, as one of my players was sure to point out to me and helpfully sent me a list of gear that would be modern that could be in there. I wondered about that, given that this is a game written to appeal to war gamers, historians, and ex-military, I think. Right? Is that fair? I'd say so. Yeah, it's a mil- it's predominantly what amounts to a military RPG. So I yeah. wonder if that how much arguing with the the GM that generates about what a specific real world military piece of hardware will and won't do. Oh yeah, I got an argument with him about GPS satellites. Okay. And how long they would last in orbit. Hi, Lenny. 
<laughs> so yeah, that was that's a gripe of mine. I think you know again, I just don't like really huge rule books. So I think that could have been trimmed. I think some of the animals could have been trimmed. Do we really need four different types of fox in North America? Really? No, we don't. Just put a fox down and get on with your life. Well, what we're really talking about is that sliding scale of simulation. How realistic does the simulation need to be? Well, if it's very realistic, then you need all four foxes. Right? I guess. I guess you're right. But they didn't even do that in the original versions, one through three. But anyway, okay, that's mine. Over to you, Jim. Oh, we're at number one, and I cannot believe my number one didn't come up. At least there are psionics. Thank God. I mean, yeah. <laughs> give me a little Spock, you know, for my game. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. This game needs that to spice it up and get it really science fiction-y instead of just Harry Turtle Dove novel of alternative history. There's some mutations, but on the whole, most mutations involve giant tumors and dying of radiation in this game. I mean, I'm a simple man, but I am what I am. You know, it's the closest thing to magic (laughs) this game has got. Okay, there's telekinesis. Okay, there's telepathy. Thumbs up. All three thumbs. No. (laughs) My character is telepathetic. He can be pathetic at fast distances. (laughs) Well, I'm not in that target audience. So if if I joined your your campaign you're running right now, I would have to apologize in advance because the first thing I'm going to do is start trying to figure out how to jack it into a D&D wizard. That's that's the way we played Boot Hill. (laughs) Two sessions of Boot Hill back in the day and we're lobbing dynamite sticks and hitting them with, trying to hit them with shotgun blasts at people instead of what you really did in the old ones. Oh, well, that was that's actually one of the things I did with the team I'm running. It's a science team, so they all have to be scientists because I didn't want just super gunned murder hobos. Instead, I get partially gunned murder hobos. Well, we're back to Peacemaker. That village is peaceful now. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Anyway, so far they've been doing all right. I shouldn't grouse. They they played fairly scientific y for the most part. But anyhow, that was okay. my number one. At least there are Sonics. At least there are Sonics. Okay, Corbett? Okay. To, to touch on the granularity, something I thought was just absolutely pointless to put in the book. I don't know why they did. The temperature. There's like a whole, like three, four pages that covers weather patterns and weather. And not weird weather, like, you know, acid rain or anything. Right, like just generic. real weather. Yeah, but they got a rains. tornado table, too. It's like, wow. <laughs> Meteorology 101. What's the point of that? Like, guess what? It's the background of the scene you're in. Who cares? <laughs> Now, I just roll a D6 to determine level of humidity. Mm-hmm. A six, it's storming. If it's cold, it's now snowing. Get on with your life, you know? Yeah, I... just, just ask Alexa what the weather is and she'll tell you. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> if you're rolling a D6 for Ohio this week, you can knock it off. <laughs> How to get an eight on a D6? That's right. Mike controls the weather with a D6. Wah-ha-ha. <laughs> Yeah, well, again, that just gets to me. It's like, yeah, I understand detail, but some of this is like levels that I'm not sure the game really needs. Well, I ignore it. I thought was weird. I was thinking like, okay, it's raining frogs. That'd be a cool one to randomly throw in there. There's no random anything that's Kim weird. storms, acid yeah. rain. Yeah, yeah, that sort of thing. Sure, but... Corbin, yeah, you like... want a little damnation alley, at least, right? Like right. some, you know, swarms yeah. of steel jacketed cockroaches that'll swarm I mean, in like, skeletonize you or something. I don't care if it's partly cloudy. <laughs> With a chance of, of cockroaches, yeah. There's, you know, it's light fog and low visibility. With laser rabbits. <laughs> I tell you what, if if there is any future or world where a Sharknado 
would be possible, it's yeah. probably going to be Morrow. Yep, very <laughs> That's true. True. Anyway, go ahead. That was it. Except it took up four pages. Yeah, they, they filled that in really good. Yep. <laughs> okay, Liz. Just to let you know, Jim, I did actually have um, psionics put down as something to possibly talk about, but I left I'm it. I'm sorry. <gasps> if, I, if I took your number one, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. I figured you would probably want it. I was saving it back in case no one else said it. <laughs> but I did think about it. I, I did. <laughs> so as Mike kind of touched on when he introduced us all at the beginning, there's all kinds of different types of survivors that you can run across. Some of them are kind of goofy sounding. You know, you got these weird cults and stuff like that. Some of them are actually kind of neat. Welcome to the cult of the Waffle House. I want the cult of the Waffle House. <laughs> I hey, do. they all have generators. Come into the Temple of Elvis. Oh, thank you. You've been wonderful mutants. Thank you very much. Thank you. But one of one of the ones that I particularly liked to read about, and I have no idea if Mike is going to introduce these in his own game or not, but I just love the name Frozen Chosen. <laughs> oh, right, right, right. That was cool. <laughs> yeah, that rich people who froze themselves after managing to sneak the Morrow technology. Yes. <laughs> so that they'd survive. Asking your GM husband to include something in a future game by talking about it on a podcast. Well played. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just, one, the name sounds really cool. But two, like I said, it's a bunch of rich people who wanted to freeze themselves because they somehow found out that something bad was going to be coming down. And so they were going to make sure that they were among the survivors. Jeff Bezos. Yeah, but instead of you guys waking up 150 years later, they woke up after a few years the way you all were supposed to. And so you're basically dealing with these original people's descendants and they're carving out their little niches in this post-apoc future, you know, like little despot warlords. And In a word, Liz, yes. <laughs> yes, I am. All right, my number one, Nuke-O-Rama! Oh, that was yeah. from the very first rule set. You've got a list of cities and them being hit, what... Soviet missiles hit them to destroy them. So specific, it made me very nervous. In yeah. fact, and then in case you didn't want to just read about it, you're given a table to where you can throw about two or three dozen more missiles at various cities, including your hometown if you want. But my favorite one is they specifically note one of the missiles from meant for Milwaukee went off target because of malfunctioning warhead and detonated over a small place called Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. Ah! <laughs> that, that's cold. I'm sure that was a coincidence. <laughs> Gary, no! Don't split hairs. Tell us how you really feel. <laughs> well, they were from Chicago, and as John yeah. Peterson's book told us, relations with Metro Detroit and Chicago gamers were a bit um, frayed. But yeah, I thought that was amusing that they're really sure to point that out. So, all right. Now let's talk about what makes the save and what does not or takes half or whatever we decide in the future, non-specifically. Are you ready for this? The Seekers are here. Things go better with Coca-Cola. Things go better with Coca-Cola. Real life 
portion of the show is being brought to you by Philips Milk of Amnesia, the over-the-counter remedy that works so well, you'll never remember why you used it in the first place. What makes a safe and what is going to take half? What makes a save and what takes half? And this time, we're going to start with Liz. Ah, okay. Makes the save. Like I said, I really like the concept of the game. It's a post-apoc setting, but unlike a lot of these types of games, it's built in that your character is assumed to have volunteered to go into cryo-freeze because they want to help rebuild civilization after whatever cataclysmic event they are preparing for. And you all know each other already, so no sitting around a tavern. Uh, And what I particularly like about this is that, theoretically, it cuts down on character concepts of badass loner who only cares about themselves. Yes, please. If you've passed the vetting process to get into the project, you're there because you genuinely want to help. That is what I like. Mm -hmm. I like being in games where all of us around the table are genuinely trying to work together. And that doesn't mean people can't have personality quirks and get on each other's nerves in character, stuff like that. But don't really enjoy playing in games where, okay, somebody's playing a thief who is secretly trying to steal from everybody else in the group, but he's pretending to be their friend and blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, I don't want that. I don't like that. The concept behind the game, I think, is awesome. And I also think that the task resolution system and the degrees of success mechanic is the true gem amongst all of the hundreds of pages of rules and tables. (laughs) Doesn't make the save. Hundreds of pages of rules rules and and tables. Yes, there are so many tables. This game is made of tables. Tables and fiction pieces. I mean, there are a lot of fiction pieces scattered throughout this book, and quite a few of them are very long. You know, it's I not dip- just a couple of not just a couple of paragraphs to give you a, a feel. You know, you've got like a full page or a page and a half of fiction. It's like, why? Why? I never <laughs> thought I'd say this, but yeah, there's too much fiction in this. In, in fourth edition. Yeah, I, I like having some fiction pieces yeah. in games. But yeah, there's mm. an awful lot. And I think they were longer than they had to be. It's like read aloud text. A little bit goes a long way. Yeah, mm. you know, if you take away all of the tables and the fiction, you are maybe lucky to have half the page count left over. And, you know, it this it's suffering from some serious bloat. I, I, I think you could you could really cut down a lot of the fluff and still have a, a solid game. You didn't need all this. Mm-hmm. Okay. Imagine laying that monster out. <laughs> <laughs> Not enough money in the world. Okay, Corbett. Um. Okay, makes a save. I. Uh, I think you can I do think... it. You've cleverly been caught off guard by an hour into talking about this game. No, I'm just like There's nothing he likes. I think it's a, an interesting idea, and I think. It can be fun. I'll take a take a page from Jim. For my tastes, it it misses a lot of marks, and I think if I were to run it, it would probably be a totally different game. Post apocalyptic stuff is always kind of neat, but for some reason, this one just really edges me out the wrong way, and I don't know exactly why. America, um, <laughs> America. I, I think logistically, it just comes across. Okay, see, now you're you're taking my good thing and making it a bad thing. <laughs> 
I'm with Mike Corbett. Mike does that. I'd, it's what I'm here for. It's too close to reality in in not a nice way. The thing that my wife made a joke about, which my, my wife is involved in this, by the way. <laughs> She's Good. invested. Good. But no, she, she points out like the whole time. Yeah, the whole chronology thing with the different generations working together. It's like the three seashells. I don't know if you've seen Demolition Man. He goes to the bathroom. There's no toilet paper. There's just three seashells. And everybody laughs at him because he doesn't know how to three, shell- three seashells works. Like, a very serious, weird thing that I don't understand why you would put that into the game. The dis- the disconnection between the generations seems very frustrating to me. All right. So, so that was what makes the save. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what doesn't make the save is one thing. What doesn't make the save? <laughs> it sucks. <laughs> no, no, there's one thing that I thought was missing, and that's that they kept it so realistic that they didn't have any super future places no i know i know they're not going to put in sorcery but super science i would expect somebody some other group would have had their own plan a bubble city or a dome future you know jetpacks and laser rifles that sort of stuff mm-hmm. and they never ever ever mention any of that now granted it's a possibility that's one cool well, they do thing. have okay, laser the... rifles and such and uh, kind of but it's not like other cultures are doing it's stuff you can pull out of packs True, true. And um, maybe that's what makes the save is it has a lot of potential to be any world you want it to be. Hmm. And that's pretty cool. So that makes the save and then doesn't make the save as the no future. Right. Okay. Jim? <laughs> Corbett, our, our tastes are amazingly lined up for once. Um, here's my <laughs> promise to you. If, you. if you show up at a North Texas con, come sit at my MCC table and I will let you play a walking sentient tobacco plant. And you won't ever have to worry about where your tobacco is coming from. <laughs> Because it's coming from me. Head on fire and <laughs> and just enjoy the rush. I mean, some people eat their fingernails. Corbett can that's, smoke himself. That's a good uh, point. What uh, what makes the save for this is it's just it's super meticulous and takes really good care of what I think uh, its intended best audience. So if you're a war gamer, if you're an historian, if you're ex military, I bet this kind of game is just full of the stuff that you like to fanboy over and study anyway before you even get to the role-playing game part and mike like you ticked two of the three boxes right mm-hmm. wargamer historian you're just not yeah. XML. as far as i know you weren't in the military. No, i'm not in military no i was you know i i tick none of them so a great game for that audience that's what makes a save what doesn't make the save for me and i'm gonna try i think it's the same thing corbett's talking about i'm gonna try and articulate it is that it's just the i get triggered by its close relationship with real world global politics and real world setting in a way i wouldn't be if it just had one or two genre jumps. Even a Harry Turtle Dove novel takes place in an alternate timeline. Mm-hmm. So where Halo is completely unproblematic, even though it's a first-person shooter, where you're just slaughtering the crap out of everybody, Call of Duty is very tied closer to real world. Obviously, tons of people love both games and tons of people love Call of Duty. Or it, or if it's just a historical setting, instead of something that, it's even though it's technically in the future post-apocalyptic, it's very tied to the real world. That, that doesn't make the save for me personally, but, you know, there are lots of different gamers than me. Your mileage might vary. Okay. Obviously, you guys love it. You're playing it. Yep. If, if if you were running it, I think I could behave myself well enough to get through a session. I, okay. you know, I'd, I'd play it if you were running it. All right. Well, I make the save. Like Liz, I love the concept. I love the idea. I've always been a builder type, especially in role-playing games. So the idea of coming out and having to rebuild civilization, American civilization. <laughs> 
I find USA. that really cool. USA. Team America. Free art. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I like the idea that everybody is should be at least initially on the same page with the understanding that as time goes on, obviously some characters may change their mind about the, the project and its future. You at least start on the same page. None of this. You all meet at a tavern. You all already know each other. You went through training together and you got froze together. So there you go. What doesn't make the save or takes half or whatever? A combat system is too crunchy. I, I think a streamlined system like the one I, I'm using or the one they use on Mark Tomorrow's End is really makes the game a lot more fun. Structure points are a bit wearing. Blood points are dare I say, draining (laughs) (laughs) to try to adjudicate. I mean, it's bad enough when it's your own character, but try dealing when you're the the project director, their name for the GM, for like a dozen bad guys. Ugh. Ugh. No. No. Just mook rule it and go. Did you just suggest nuking a Marvel project role? Because that's funny too. (laughs) (laughs) In a way, yeah. Yeah. Re-nuke, double-nuke. Nuke 2.0? I don't know. I really think that if Timeline could just do a cheap-ass gamer version of Marvel Project and like cut out a lot of the extraneous stuff, I think it would do fairly well. A simplified combat system. But then, I like the game. And Liz tolerates it. So, you know, that's cool. <laughs> that's all we can hope for. <laughs> uh, Marvel Project is currently available from Timeline Limited. You can also get it on Amazon. We'll have links in the show notes. It is curiously not available on DriveThruRPG, nor any of the old modules, which with a few minor modifications are forward compatible to 4th edition. But we'll put a link in the show notes and uh, hope everybody enjoys it. They're all over eBay, too, and they're not that pricey compared to what some things from the 80s can be. There's the original Kickstarter hardback edition, and then there was a reprinted softback edition. We got the softback edition, and we got that from Amazon, I believe. So anyway, take a look at it if it sounds like something you'd like to give a shot. Otherwise, uh, we'll just say goodnight. Or or send emails about how much Corbin and I hate America to (laughs) saverdiepodcast at gmail.com, right? Yeah, send it to saverdiepodcast at gmail.com. That's great. (laughs) Send it to them. Yeah. Yeah. No, is it wrong? Safer. Oh, Saver Die. (laughs) My poor dyslexic brain at 9 30 at night. Free art, free art, free art. Sorry. (laughs) See what Morrow Project did to Jim? Think about it, won't you? (laughs) Carl or whoever's there now. Why the actual actual frack? (laughs) Why are they calling me writing me about hating America? I don't (laughs) Or or, or Vince will go, I knew it. (laughs) (laughs) Say goodnight, everybody. There's a contact form on the website. Try that. Yeah, there's that too. (laughs) Good night, everybody. Oh, see you in two hundred (laughs) years. At least. Goodbye. 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 Free arc fourth edition. We are out. The Save for Half Podcast is a production of the Mud Puppy Games Network and the Gagman Podcast. The Save for Half theme music is provided by the band Mississippi Bones. You can find them at mississippibones.bandcamp.com. All player characters mentioned in this podcast are fictional, and any resemblance to PCs living or dead is purely coincidental. No NPCs were armed in the making of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Save for Half. Clean your ass and-
Gottes Licht, die Leben fallen. 